It's like chaining a dog to the pulpit. <laughs> I can't walk when I have this thing on. Yeah. Let me start over again. Let me encourage you to take some time this week to read the scripture's account of the week and events leading up to the Lord's death. Um, I didn't know Aaron was going to make that plug for the Dwell app again. I'm glad he did. For those of you that don't have it, I am... I've already set up emails to send out to you every day this week with some scriptures for you to be reading that will kind of take you through this week. And so I hope that if, you don't, if you're not on the Dwell app doing that, that you'll at least read those scriptures that are sent out um, and that there'll be an encouragement to you. Um, I, too, want to encourage you, and I want to say this. A lot of times I think people make the mistake when it comes to Resurrection Sunday because we do two services those are not identical services. We're gonna, they're two totally unique services, and I want to encourage you to come and be a part of both of them. Um, you know, I don't want to guilt you into it, but, I mean, the Lord died and rose for us. Can we get up a little bit earlier on Resurrection Sunday, maybe? <laughs> maybe. Maybe could we do that just to celebrate, celebrate together? Um, I think that might be a good thing. So, Genesis chapter 25 this morning. Genesis chapter 25. And as you're turning there, when you're reading a book of the Bible and, and when you're studying a book of the Bible, every once in a while, the writer will drop what I would call breadcrumbs for us. And in Genesis, Moses does that. In the Holy Spirit inspiring Moses, he does that. And there are, there are 10 instances where Moses starts a new thought with this phrase. Now these are the generations of. And, and as you're reading through, you'll see that the Hebrew word for that is tolidoth, but we're not going to use that word because none of you are Hebrew scholars, at least none of you really want to be a Hebrew scholar if you are one. If you've studied Hebrew, you realize that it's terrible, right? So, but the, the word is tolidoth, and, and we have one of those at the beginning of our text this morning at Genesis 25 and verse 19. Maybe you're sitting there wondering, where are the other ones? Well, let me give them to you real quick. Genesis 2, 4, the generations of the heavens and the earth. Genesis 5, 1, the generations of Adam. Genera generations of Noah in chapter 6 and verse 9. Then in chapter 10, verse 1, the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then in chapter 11, the generations of Shem, because it's from Shem where all the, where all the important Israeli family line comes from. And then we have, in verse 27 of chapter 11, the generations of Terah, and then in chapter 25, the generations of Ishmael. Now we have the generations of Isaac, and then we're going to come to the generations of Esau, and then the generations of Jacob. So why would Moses break it up this way? Well, because, as I mentioned to us last week, this is a big passing of the torch here now. Abraham, the first patriarch, is off of the scene, and now it's going to shift to Isaac. And what we're going to find as we shift to Isaac, and, and, and as we go even forward with Jacob and Esau, and, and then Joseph, and as we move forward in the scripture account, is what we're going to find is, is that every single one of these men, every single one of these men that we hold up as these great leaders, they're all scoundrels. Abraham was a scoundrel, Right? The guy, the guy threw his wife under the bus twice, right? He was a scoundrel. But before you and I, you know, get appalled by that, let's just turn our gaze inward for a second. Every single one of us is a scoundrel. Every single one of us is a scoundrel. 
And so these people are no different than you and I. And so this morning, we're going to pick up the account in Genesis 25, and we're going to go through the end of the chapter. I want to read it for us to set the stage, and then, and then we'll go back and we'll start to unpack some of this. Genesis 25, verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Peda and Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb, The first came out red, all like his body, like a hairy cloak, and so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright, and they're both scoundrels, are they not? But then again, so are every one of us. So let's pray, because God needs to work in our scoundrel hearts, doesn't he? Father, we thank you so much for your word. And this morning, while we have precious moments to focus on it, I pray that you would remove from us the cares of this world, remove from us the things that that are still nagging at us from the past week, the things that we're anxious about in the week ahead, so that in these next moments we might just be calm before you, that spirit you would come do only what you can do, take the word of God and plant it deep in our hearts so that it would take root and bear fruit in our lives, I pray. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. What I first want you to see this morning is this miraculous birth, okay? This, this is a miraculous birth, and it's, it's a similar circumstance to what Abraham and Sarah went through. Remember, Abraham and Sarah, they were promised that, that they were going to have a great nation that was going to come from them, and, and what we don't realize is, is that Isaac, as the promised son, that same pressure is now on Isaac to have a son, Right? To keep this going, he's got to have a son. And what we find out is, is that in verse 21, we've got the same situation as with Sarah. We got Rebecca who can't have a child. And and, and so we've got a similar circumstance. And I have to ask myself this when I read this account. What is going on here? God, why are you doing this, okay? What's going on here? And, And as I think about this, And as I contemplate this, I come up with this. 
And whether you realize it or not, I think it's true for every one of us, God in His wisdom, because He knows beginning from end, because He knows all, because He knows what's going to be best for us, God intentionally puts us in situations where we have to just put up our hands and say, I, I don't know what to do. How many of you have ever been in that situation? And you think to yourself, what did I do to get myself here? And that's the wrong way to look at it. Maybe God is putting you in that situation so that you will put your hands up and that you will turn your attention directly to Him and so that you will have to rely on Him. Here is where Isaac and Rebecca are. God puts us in these situations not only so that we'll just have to throw up our hands and say, what am I going to do? But he puts us in these situations so that he can show to us, so that he can more than show, but demonstrate to us that it's him who gets the results. And he does it in such a way that only he will get the glory. And we need that. And, and obviously, Isaac and Rebecca needed that. Now, to Isaac's credit, he doesn't do what his father had done. And, and you have to think about that. There, there's this pressure, I've got to have a child. And, and so there's a couple ways you can go about doing that, right? You can adopt or you can have a different mother. And Isaac doesn't fall into the same pit and the same, the same wrong idea and the wrong thinking that his father had done. And we can learn a lesson here from Isaac. What does Isaac do? He doesn't rely on his own wisdom, but he just turns to pray. He turns to pray. Do you see it there in verse 21? And, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. He prayed to the Lord his wife. That word there that, that we have translated prayer is an interesting word. It's a really interesting word. It has the idea of intense supplication. I mean, not just like, oh, Lord, bless those people and, and be with my family today. How many of you are guilty of praying that way? Just be with. Because we don't know what to pray. We're just like, oh, be with them. No, this isn't a be with kind of prayer. This is an absolute, God, I have this desperate need, and I know that only you can fill it, and I am begging you, God. I am begging you, God. It's the same word that is used in Exodus chapter 10 and verse 18, where it says that Moses, in our English Bibles, it's translated this way, pleaded with the Lord to remove the plague of locusts in Egypt. He pleaded and I have to stop and think this way. God puts us in situations where all we can do is just plead with Him. Now, are those situations fun? Are those situations easy? Are those situations that we, we, we write in our journals and say, man, I wish I had one of these every month. Sometimes they're life-altering, and sometimes it only takes just one for God to really get our attention, doesn't it? And I would say to you this morning, if you're in that situation, follow the example of Isaac. Just plead with the Lord. Don't try to take matters in your own hands. Just plead with the Lord. This has been going on for a while. Remember in verse 20, he was married at 40, 
And it isn't, and we find out until verse 26, that, that, he has, that he has a son until he's 60. So it's quite possible that this has been going on for like 20 years, that Isaac has been pleading with God to answer his prayer. I think of James chapter 5 and verse 16, the fervent prayer of a righteous man is accomplishing much. It's not just the wimpy prayers that we often pray, it's that fervent prayer. And I, I look around this room, and I, and I know many of you, and I know many of your situations, and I know that many of you have had heart's desires that you have wanted from the Lord for 5 and 10 and 15. Some of you have adult children that you are begging that God would just transform their hearts, and I just say to you, keep on being an Isaac and beg of God. Keep praying. Keep praying. Don't give up. Keep praying. And what we see here is Isaac's faith in motion. He believed the promise that was given to his father that transferred to him, and, and, and he, he asked because he believed. Now stop and think about that. When you ask because you don't believe, how are you going to ask? I mean, when your kids ask you for something in the store and they know that you're a tightwad and won't buy it for them, how do they ask? They ask this way, I really wish I could have that transformer. Got kids that do that? But if your kids really believe that you want to give them good things, and they really believe, right or wrong, that, that you have the power to make it happen, what do they do when you go to the store? Mommy, can I have that? And sometimes they don't even just say, can I have that? They go and pick it up and they put it in the cart. That's faith, right? That's faith. And you as a good parent often just crush their faith, right? <laughs> but that's faith, isn't it? Do you go to God and say, man, I wish I could have that? Or do you go to God and say, God, I need that. You've promised that. I'm counting on you to supply that. There's a difference there, isn't there? And Isaac prayed because he believed. He prayed because he believed. He understood who God was. And notice in verse 21, what does God do? God grants his prayer. He grants his prayer. And let's, let's make note here. This wasn't because Isaac prayed some convincing prayer. It's because God is going to keep his promises. And he answers Isaac and he grants what he desires. And we have this remarkable pregnancy. I'm so thankful I'm a man. I have never experienced pregnancy. That's not on my bucket list. But I have watched my wife go through four pregnancies. And I, I can remember when she was pregnant with our twins, being there and laying in bed and literally watching both of them moving around. It's just an amazing thing. Now, I don't think that we ever in our family dealt with what Rebecca dealt with in her pregnancy. Verse 22, the children struggled together within her. And she said, basically, let me, let me interpret the ESV for you. What is going on here, God? This is not cool. This is quite uncomfortable. The English says this, it caused her to inquire. But I like that. 
I like that. And there's something that I see in this. Isaac and Rebekah are praying for a child. God answers. And when God answers prayer, what does that cause you to do? When, when God is answering prayer in your life, when you see God at work, what does that cause you to do? It causes you to go back to the throne all the more, doesn't it? And so she's dealing with this, with this troublesome pregnancy where literally she feels like her babies are at war within her. And what does she do? She turns to God and she said, what's going on here, God? What's happening here? And, and, and there's something about this. When you see your prayers answered, maybe not answered the way you want them answered, but when you see that God is answering your prayers, you're all the more prone to go back to Him, aren't you? Now notice God's answer. Verse 23. This is a remarkable pregnancy. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Well, we already know there's one people in her womb, right? We know that there's the promised nation, right? The, 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 the nation of promise to Israel, or I mean to, to Abraham, you know? I'm going to make you a great nation, greater than the stars in the heaven, the sands on the sea. Or, and so now we know that there's one nation, but God says, wait, there's two nations now. There's a second nation. We find out yeah, this isn't a normal pregnancy. You're having twins. I remember the day that Amy and I went to go get the ultrasound. And it was Amy's fourth pregnancy. And we're sitting there, and we're, we're kind of excited. And, and quite honestly, I'm hoping for a boy, right? Three girls, I love all my daughters, but I thought, maybe God just once give me a son. And now I wonder, what was I asking for? Um, that's a different story. But we're sitting there, and they're doing the ultrasound, and I'm looking at the ultrasound technician, and she's like going like this, and she's moving over here, and she's moving over there, and she's going like this, and she says, I see one healthy heartbeat, and I see another healthy heartbeat, and I'm like, <laughs> my first thought, because I'm an idiot, is two hearts and one baby, oh, we got a problem. My wife immediately tears up. She knew, what was, she knew what was going on here. And it's a shock to your system. And God tells Rebecca, you got two babies in there. And, and not only this, he, he points out. Notice in verse 23, two nations are in your room and two peoples from within you shall be divided. That word divided is interesting. It's the same word back in chapter 13 when, when God's talking about Lot and Abraham and how they had to separate. That wasn't, it wasn't always a, a friendly relationship, was it? And what he's pointing out here is you've got rivals. You've got rivals right there in your belly, woman. And, and they're going to go at it. And then he goes on to say this, there would be a role reversal. The younger will inherit the blessings of the older, and the older will serve the younger. Now, what's the custom of this time? If you're firstborn, you get the double blessing. You get the double share of inheritance. So if there's only two of you, that means you get two, and your sibling gets one. If there's four of you, you get two, and then the other siblings have to pass it all on down, right? Right? Always the firstborn gets it. Makes it easy, right? Hey, 
You could have been born first, but you weren't, right? In this case, we have conventional wisdom, and what we have to remember is God is not subject to man's conventional wisdom. God is not held hostage by the customs of the day. Aren't you glad? God is not subject to the will or the desires of what men want here. And what God says in verse 23, God is decreeing it there. The older will serve the younger. It's not just like, hey, I know this is going to happen. God is saying this is the way it's going to be. What this means then is that God sovereignly chose how he's going to work in this situation. And and that shouldn't surprise us. That shouldn't surprise us. God's going to do what God's going to do, is he not? And, and, And God is not governed by man's logic. In fact, the Apostle Paul takes this very passage of Scripture, and he uses it to explain something really big about God in Romans chapter 9. Turn with me to Romans chapter 9, and you're like, Petey, are you really going to go there? Yes, I am. Because when, it, when you talk about the birth of Jacob and Esau, you have to talk about what God does in this. Because what we're going to find as we move forward here in the message is that, and I've mentioned it already to you, is, is that both Jacob and Esau are scoundrels. Are they not? Neither one of them, neither one of them is what you and I would call a good first choice for God to choose. They both have really bad weaknesses. They both have really bad character traits. And yet God's going to choose one of them. And so when Paul is writing about this in Romans chapter 9, he begins by saying this, you know, I, I, I love Israel. Israel is my, is my home nation. And, and, and he says in verse 4, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong, verse 5, the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And he goes, but it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And what he's saying is this, not everyone who is a Jew by birth is actually a true child of Abraham. Because remember, the true children of Abraham, as we saw, were those who are justified by faith. And he goes on, and as he builds through this, verse 12, she was told, this is Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. And notice what God says in response to that. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. Now that is a cup of cold water in the face, isn't it? That is a cup of cold water in the face that will wake us up. I hope it wakes us up to this. God is going to do what God is going to do. He continues on then. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. In other words, wipe that thought from your mind. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And we tend to look at that passage and say, 
man, what a cold God. And yet Paul, when he writes it under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, what a merciful God that he would have mercy on any of us. What a merciful God. And it's clear in Romans chapter 9 that what we now, when we go back to Genesis 25, it's clear that there's nothing in Jacob and there's nothing in Esau that God would say no to Esau and yes to Jacob. It's nothing about their character. Nothing makes them worthy of being chosen. And what we have to say then is this. As hard as it is to wrap our minds around this, and I will freely admit it's hard to wrap our minds around this, if it had nothing to do with Jacob and it had nothing to do with Esau, then it had to do everything with who then? It had everything to do with God. And if you want to put it in a slang way, I've already said it once, God's going to do what God does. God isn't subject to making it so that you and I understand it. And I think sometimes we treat God that way. God, I'm okay with you doing what you're going to do, but you've got to make it so that I understand it. There's some things that happen in life that just are ununderstandable. I just made up a word. They're not understood. And if you and I think that we can twist what God does some way and make it understandable, then we are absolutely warping what God is doing. And this account of Jacob and Esau is clear. God chose because that's what God wanted to do. And God's demonstrating that he's not held, held hostage by customs or held hostage by man's logic or held hostage by the way things have always been done. That is a terrible phrase that should be banished from everybody's mind and everybody's thinking. You can't put our immense God in a box. And what we're going to find out is you say, well, then poor Esau is doomed from the beginning. No, Esau is doomed because he despised his birthright. And as we move forward, we're going to see there's a marked contrast in these boys. Look at verse 25. So she's given birth. The first one comes out red and all his body like a hairy cloak. I mean, he's basically a red muppet. <laughs> right? This hairy, red-haired, just, he's already born looking like he's like 16 years old. He needs a shave. His name actually means hairy. Esau means hairy. I mean, you know, he's born. What are we going to name him? Well, Harry, <laughs> right? And he's your classic hunter-gatherer type. Some of you men in, in, in here can relate. Oh, oh, yeah. Kill things, yes, yes, good. Right? The classic hunter-gatherer type. He's a man of the field, it says. He's an outdoorsman. And then, in verse 28, he's loved by his daddy. 
He's loved by his daddy. He's favored by Isaac. And why? Because Isaac likes what he gets from him. Isaac likes what he gets from him. That's what the scripture says. He brings me game, and I like what he brings me. So you have Esau on one hand. Now, on the other hand, you got Jacob. And Jacob comes out holding his brother's foot. And because he's holding his brother's foot, that's how he gets the name Jacob. The name Jacob is associated with heel, okay? And what that meant, what that used to mean was, was that you would go and you would protect at the heel of somebody. It was actually a good name to be given, like you're the protector, but Jacob, in the way that he acted, as we see here, turned out to ruin the name Jacob from wherever on, because Jacob now means usurper. It means, it means sneaky, devious guy. Jacob now is this indoor guy, if you will. He's quiet. He's controlled. He obviously uses his mind a lot. He's a thinker, schemer, planner kind of guy. And if you look at verse 28, he's loved by mom. And all the hunter-gatherer types are like, he's a mama's boy. Right? So, so you got, you got, you got, ooh, 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 over here, and you've got little sneaky, hung on to mama's ape strings, apron strings guy over here. Right? Question, who made them that way? Who made them that way? And as a parent, what was the responsibility of both those parents? To love them both, was it not? Was it not, their, was it not their responsibility to love them both? Yes, it was. And so now we have this rivalry that God has predicted, right? He told Rebecca there's going to be this rivalry, okay? If you have multiple children in your family, you know that that's already built into the system, right? Some of you I'm looking at, you've got multiple boys in your family, and they just like to beat the snot out of one another, right? It's what they do. It's what boys do. And the sisters are like, oh, it's so gross. Why did you have boys? And sisters, I've got to tell you, I have daughters. Sister rivalry is worse than any boy rivalry. Mark it down. That's right, they're vicious. That's a good way to put it. So you have this built-in rivalry already because you've got multiple children. And what we see here in the Scripture is, in verse 28, what Moses is pointing out for us is, is that Isaac and Rebekah didn't help out what was already going to be a contentious situation. Parents, you want to know the best way to destroy your children? Play favorites. It's the best way to destroy them. Even the one that you favor, you're destroying them. The best way to destroy your children is to play favorites. Just hate them all equally. No, I didn't, don't, I'm just teasing. Just teasing. It's recorded, I know. Delete that, please. No. So now we have this situation where we have two very different sons. We have this prediction by God and now we see this start to play out in verse 29. 
So let's just be honest here as we look at this. Neither Esau or Jacob look very righteous here. Neither Esau or Jacob look very righteous here. You know, I think of, I think of, the, of the prediction about Christ coming. He shall save his people from their sins. Guess what? Jacob needed saved from his sins. And he was his people, right? So verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. So imagine this, Esau's trying this new recipe, okay? Hey, I'm just in the kitchen, I'm working on my new recipe here. Esau comes in and he is starving, right? Esau says to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. This is how we find out how he's named Edom. Edom means red, okay? It's this situation that gets him named. Jacob doesn't miss a beat here, does he? Let me have some of that food. Jacob immediately ups the ante and he's like, sell me your birthright and I'll give you whatever you want. Okay? Now think about this. For him to say that, what does that tell you about Jacob's heart? He has been looking for an opportunity, hasn't he? He has been looking for an opportunity. What it also tells me is this, is that his mother, who was so attached to him, was not shutting it down. She was encouraging it. Jacob is all too willing to take advantage of his brother's situation. Esau, he has no respect for the birthright. He has no respect for what God's doing in his family, and he, he treats the birthright right, like it's just like, it's like a credit card to get himself a meal for, for, because he's hungry. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 16, because of this very event, God calls him in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 16 unholy. God charges him with sin in this. His birthright meant nothing to him, and so he despises the birthright and despises God. Well, you've taken it away from me anyway, God, so might as well just give it to him now. And again, I come back to this. The fact that God loved and chose either one of these scoundrels can be attributed to nothing but God's grace. And isn't that the story of all of us? Not one of us in this room, not one of us online, not one of us within my shouting distance this morning deserves the grace of God, yet he chooses to give it. Yeah, Jacob was the chosen patriarch to lead the family, but he was just as much a willful sinner as Esau was. He was just as much a rebel as Esau was. Esau didn't take God's word seriously, and because of that, he despised his birthright, and he cannot blame Jacob for his actions. It's not like one day Esau's going to give an account and say, it's the brother you gave me who was trying to sneak it and take it away from me. No, the scripture records very seriously and very clearly here for us in verse 34, he despised that birthright. He didn't think much of it at all. You say, well, Jacob believed the promise. He believed that it was going to come to him. Yeah, but Jacob believed the promise would come to him, but he didn't believe it was going to come to him apart from being a manipulator. 
And boy, are there some lessons we can learn from that. It's one thing to take God at His word and just trust in Him. It's another thing to take God at His word and then you behind the scenes try to help God out. God doesn't need our help. And this is just setting the stage for how He's going to do it in a much bigger way. And I wonder when I read this, if you and I, maybe somebody in this room, can't be guilty of despising the birthright that's been given to us. I say, what do you mean by that? Giving up what God has graced us with so that we could take what the world wants to offer to us. What I mean specifically by that is this. Maybe you're the person who has attended church all your life. Maybe you haven't. Maybe this is just new to you. This whole Christianity thing is new to you. But, but here's the thing. If you know, if you've heard that Christ died for you, if you've heard and, and you know that, that you're a sinner and that you need to respond to, to that fact that you're a sinner by for asking for forgiveness of your sin, admitting your sin to God, and taking by faith what God has done for you in Christ, if you know that to be true and you're rejecting that, you're rejecting your birthright. You're spitting on it. If you're saying, I'll do that later, if you're saying, I'm not bad enough that I need someone to die for me, you're rejecting the birthright. You're turning your back on it. You're saying, I don't need that. In doing that, you're, 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 you're rejecting all that Christ offers to you. We forfeit the benefits of the Word of God and not treasuring up the wisdom that it offers on, on Thursday mornings, the, the men that are gathering, we're studying in the Proverbs right now, and the thing that we're learning more and more every week is that the only wisdom to be found that's really lasting in this world is the wisdom of God's Word. And I would say to you how foolish it is to reject Christ and His Word. It's just as foolish, if not more foolish, than Esau rejecting the birthright and despising it. And there are some here, I'm sure, this morning who have rejected what Christ has done for them so they can eat of the stew that the world wants to give them. And that stew is going to taste really bitter one day. So what do we take away from this? Well, I think the big thing that we take away from this is, is that we don't trade away the lasting, truly beneficial for the temporary. We don't trade away the lasting, truly beneficial thing, salvation in Christ, for the temporary. We don't give up the eternal and eternal life for what this life has to give. And sadly, that's not just the message of the world today. It's the message of many churches today who say they're proclaiming Christ. They're telling you to do this. Don't worry about the eternal. Take what God has for you right now and grab it all. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. No, take hold of eternal life and all that Christ has to offer to you and store up riches in heaven. So don't trade the lasting for the temporary. Secondly, it's one thing to say you believe God and really leave it with Him and, and be like Isaac and Rebecca and go to Him in prayer and just, and just fervently beg of Him. And then it's another thing to manipulate God like Jacob tried to do. 
You see, Jacob really doesn't have much faith at this point in his life. He says he does. He says he believes God. He, he acts like he believes God, but he doesn't believe God enough without having to manipulate the situation. You say, what do you do in these situations when, it, when I know, that, what do I do when I know that what God has promised, and, 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 I, and I believe Romans 8, 28, that God's working all things together for good. I believe that God is going to get glorified in situations. I believe that God has a good plan for my life. What do you do in those situations when it doesn't really manifest in front of you? Because a lot of us in this room are dealing with that right now. I know God has made promises, but I just don't see them happening in my life. What do we do? Well, here's what you do. First, you set your mind to delight in Him. You delight in Him. You say, but He's not giving me what I want. Well, God is not a genie in a bottle. He is the Almighty One who is working His purpose and His plan all the time. Stop treating Him like He's a genie. Delight in Him first, and then secondly, focus on serving and obeying Him. You say, yeah, I've tried that thing. I've tried being obedient to God, and He hasn't delivered, so, hmm, I'm done. You're a quitter. You're a quitter. And here's the thing. God isn't quitting on you. Why would you quit on Him? Which leads me to the third part. You endure patiently. You wait on the Lord. We see that as like punishment that I have to wait on the Lord. But who are you waiting on? Listen to the phrase, wait on the, the Almighty One, the sustainer, the one who has a good plan for you, the one who is working all things together for, for your good, for His glory at the right time, in the right way. Why would we not trust that God? We don't need to manipulate people and situations for God's will to be accomplished, friends. To do so is actually not showing much faith at all. And then thirdly, parents take this lesson home. Don't foster sibling rivalry by the way that you treat your children differently. Yes, our children are all made uniquely. Some respond differently to other things, but you better love them all the same, and they better know it, and they better see it. Because what happens here is, is that Isaac and Rebekah set a bad precedent that, that played out later on in a big way, in a big way. And it not only affected their child rearing, it affected the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. They're both trying to pull one over on each other. That's no way to have a marriage. So in the end, I guess, what are we seeking here? Are we seeking what God really wants for us, or are we seeking what we think we need to get from God? And that's what Jacob is guilty of doing here, seeking what he thinks he needed to get from God, rather than what God had for him. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that all of us, as horrible rebels and scoundrels can find grace. 
not because we've earned it, because we deserve it, or anything like that, but because you would give it to us. And so, Lord, I pray for those in this room today that might be rejecting the birthright, that might be rejecting Christ and all that he has to offer, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would run to the cross. Lord, I pray for parents in this room. Parenting is hard work. Help us to love our children well. Help us to not favor them. Lord, we desire to raise children that would love Jesus and that would treasure him and want to serve him. And our world doesn't want us to do that. So help us in that, I pray. God, may we never be guilty of trying to manipulate in a way to help you. But may we, like Isaac and Rebecca at the beginning of this text, may we just fervently trust and pray to you, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen.